Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 1 to 12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Today's gospel reading is from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are continuing our sermon series titled, Called to Community, Called in Community. Today's sermon focuses on our being a community of formation, and my working title is People, Priests, and Proclamation. I trust that the words of Peter, Moses, and Jesus can be helpful for us along the way. Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Holy Spirit, come and comfort, heal, convict, and encourage us. We pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I grew up in Ohio in the small town of Mount Pleasant, population 800, no traffic lights. I was the fourth of four sons, but my brothers were all much older, so I was really reared more as an only child, while being reminded that I belonged to the Thompson family, was part of an evangelical Quaker worshiping community, and I was an Ohioan, hence considered a polytheist by some, born as I was into the parallel worshiping community of the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, I wasn't told any of this explicitly, 
It was more something I absorbed osmotically, something I sensed but didn't really know consciously until much, much later. When I was 13, Jesus found me in a most serious and overwhelming way at a summer church camp in the mountains of West Virginia. And I spent the rest of that summer devouring the New Testament, reading from the Living Bible, the paraphrased version of the Bible that my mother had given me and that had heretofore held me in rapt attention as I read of the life and exploits of David and Jonathan, and not least because Ken Taylor, the paraphraser, didn't hold back in his use of colorful language, and I'm sure it was accurate, language that certainly was not permitted in my house, and in later editions was changed, I'm also sure, because of all the 13-year-old boys who were able to use that kind of language at the dinner table, much to their parents' chagrin. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you should check out the early editions of the Living Bible where I think Taylor got it right. But the New Testament, at least beyond the Gospels, was something I never had read before. Reading these letters that summer turned my world upside down, young as it was. Moreover, I didn't understand why everyone else around me who called themselves Christians weren't as overwhelmed and in wondrous awe as I was by this news of the gospel, a response perhaps not uncommon to many who are new to the faith. However, given my temperament and other things about my family's particular ways of relating to each other, I also simultaneously responded to my new relationship with Jesus and my wondering why everyone else wasn't as blown away by this news as I was with a personal sense of doubt, doubting that, I was experiencing, doubting that what I was experiencing was real, wondering if I was just making stuff up, wondering if I was wrong, and dreadfully so. Perhaps it was me and not everyone else who was off. And if one is off about something this important, then you were off with a capital O. At the time, as a teenager, I didn't really have anyone to speak with about any of this. Since then, I have had any number of people who have listened patiently and helpfully to my travails, listening that has often kept me from despair. But following my encounter with Jesus in the mountains of West Virginia, for the better part of the next 20 years, this feeling that I could be catastrophically wrong followed me and in some ways still does. It is not too much to say that I have been tormented by this sense that at some point I will be found out to be wrong about Jesus, wrong about what I believe to be important and true about the world, and when that happens, I will be left, forgettable as I feel myself to be in those moments, or asked to leave. Now, when I look at my life, there's not much evidence that that is likely to happen. But when you take a peek inside my head, it is at times an entirely different story. It much less frequently invades my consciousness now, but it still lurks and looks for opportunities to grab me by the throat. For all that I was told, implicitly or explicitly, that I belonged to a particular family, in a particular faith community, in a particular town, in a particular state with a particular football team, none of it was enough to counter the message that ultimately I didn't belong. It wasn't until much, much later in my life that I became aware of how much this core sense of being different, of not being enough, 
had to do with my family's relational dynamics and my response to them. But it didn't keep those dynamics from coloring my relationship with Jesus. It didn't keep me from confusing my not being acceptable in my family or acceptable to my friends or to my colleagues with not being acceptable, not belonging to God. Which brings me to our texts. I will be focusing on verses 9 through 10 from the passage that Phyllis read from 1 Peter, but we'll be referring to other parts of the passage throughout. And so, beginning with verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a chosen people. Peter was writing to churches in present-day Turkey, churches filled with former pagans, along with Jews who were now followers of Jesus, all people whose worlds, like mine, had been turned upside down by the good news of Jesus. The Gentiles of these groups had descended from barbarian tribes that had entered that region long before the Romans, conquering and pillaging as they came, only to be conquered by the Romans themselves. Theirs was a dog-eat-dog -dog world, conquer or be conquered, and their religious life reflected this as well. And you can believe they knew what it meant to be religious, what it meant to live in a world in which the gods were in charge, and you best not upset them, or they would, in their anger, make you pay. One can imagine how, apart from Jesus, to a group of people that included many former pagans, in that time and place, hearing them for the first time, Peter's words would have made no sense. Chosen in love by a God? In the way that Peter was talking about? Hardly. Like virtually every culture in the history of humankind, theirs had established religious practices that were exemplary of and reminded them of what was most important in their lives. Yes, they had their crops to tend and children to raise and ships to build, but always in the shadow of the presence of the gods. Which of them was pleased or angry was taken into consideration any time anything good or bad happened. And so, to make sure that no one was screwing up, to make sure we're doing the right thing so we can get what we need, for as long as there have been cultures, we have had priests who we employ to help us keep the peace with the gods, who can be so fickle and so capricious. We still do the same thing, by the way. The same things. We modernists, our gods have just taken on different forms of the same things we have always worshipped, some permutations of money, sex, or power, and we have different priests who are in charge of the messaging that the gods need us to hear. In this way of being aware of the presence and activity of the gods, the Jews were no different than any other Near Eastern culture. What was different was the nature of their God. Theirs was a God who was not sitting around expecting to be tended to, much as were the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, and by this time, Caesar not the least. 
The gods of the Greeks and the Romans could easily, in their distemper, and sometimes for no discernible reason, punish you with bad weather or bad eyesight or just bad luck, and then go on to ask for a sacrifice in order for your luck to change, something you couldn't even guarantee. The God of the Jews was different. He was only one to begin with, and he wasn't of the sea or of fertility. No, he'd made all that stuff. Nor was he one who was waiting for people to find and please him first. No, he was a God who made the first move. He came to find the Hebrews. But they weren't even Hebrews before he chose them. In fact, it was in his finding and choosing them that they became a people who had a name in the first place. It began with him choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he chose Moses on the way to finding the rest of Israel's family, all several hundred thousand of them enslaved in Egypt. And as he led them out of Egypt and into the desert, he paused them, looked them in the eye, and said, I choose you. You belong to me. And get this, it is in my choosing you that you become a people. Before that, you were slaves with no names, no land, and no future. But now you do because I have chosen you. It was in the choosing by God, by this God, the God who loves, that the Hebrews were awakened to their being formed into a people. They did not self-determine their identity. They did not self-identify anything. God did the identifying. They did, they, moreover, each individual Israelite could only call himself or herself that because of the other association with the rest of the people that they were part of. Who I am as an individual is first understood in terms of whose I am, to whom I belong. This is a very different way of understanding what we in the West now believe it means to be human. And so we read in 1 Peter that we are a chosen people. I am not a Christian first or even primarily because I choose to become one. I am one because, as Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. These words echo Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, where we read the following. Then Moses went up to God... And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. We all know what it's like to be chosen and not to be. We long to be wanted, to be picked for the team on the playground. If not first, well, at least not last. This God of the Hebrews was a God who chose people, but not just to do his bidding, 
not like the other Near Eastern gods. He brought them to himself. He brought them into an intimate relationship of love. No one had ever known a god like this before. And given how different he was, he was going to need a group of people to remind each other of that, their, of that very thing. It was, if it was left up to them as individuals in the privacy of their own minds, they would soon forget. When I was 13, I felt completely undone in a good way, actually, with the sense that Jesus had found me had chosen me, had chosen us as his followers. What I have spent the rest of my life contending with is how Jesus choosing me is at war with the parts of my story that evil uses, again, in the privacy of my own mind, to convince me that Jesus hasn't actually chosen me, despite evidence to the contrary. And part of how Jesus is working to persuade me that I am chosen such that I feel it in my chest, is by the very life I live with my friends, specifically with the members of WCF, not least those of my covenant group, who have loved me through thick and thin for nearly 30 years. At WCF, as a people chosen by God, we seek to bear His image by choosing each other, by choosing each other as an extension of being chosen by God. But Peter doesn't stop there, because God didn't. Peter reminds his readers that they are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This again echoes Exodus 19, in which God tells the Israelites that you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel eventually went on to develop its own priesthood, just as other cultures around it had. But from the time they were chosen, God's mission was that the nation as an entire community, not just the priests, would be a priesthood for the world to carry out what God had promised to Abraham so long ago, that God chose and blessed Abraham so that he might be a blessing for the nations. For Peter, the body of Christ was the culmination of Exodus 19. We are a royal priesthood. And just as the responsibility of priests in part was to speak to the people on behalf of God, so we too bear witness to those around us, for better or worse, of the God we serve. But to be royal is to have authority, authority we must not ever take lightly. Scripture reveals that the nation of Israelites had a hard time learning this, and we still are. We have not been chosen just so we can enjoy the benefit. We are chosen to give away what we have been given. We must know that as Christians, we are every day authoring words of life or death in all of our actions, whether or not we are aware of it. We are priests, and people pay attention to priests in particular ways. Moreover, as Peter continues, this authority comes with the awareness of being holy. We have been set aside. We are different. This does not sit well or comfortably with our modern sensibilities. We too often worry that the biblical sense of being set apart will lead to arrogant self-righteousness, and we are right to be concerned about this. 
But God's choosing the people of Israel did not automatically guarantee that they suddenly became paragons of virtue. But choose them he did, as he has us, and he drew them to himself with the expectation that he would form them into who he wanted them to be, despite their persistent resistance. Despite my persistent resistance. And this required their being set apart. You can't form a clay pot in the middle of traffic or while you're exercising. No, you have to have a studio, a place set apart with particular tools that enable you to form the pot that itself is then set apart. This is necessary if it is to be formed into the beauty the potter imagines it to be. The Israelites had to learn a completely different set of ethics than those of the surrounding cultures. And this learning process was only completed in the coming of Jesus. In Jesus, God finally had a priest who fully lived into his authority with humility and obedience, fully able to give away the love that God had intended the nation of Israel to distribute from the beginning, because Jesus was fully receptive to God's love in the first place. He knew in his bones that he belonged to God. Being fully receptive to God's love is something I'm quite imperfect at, which is the primary reason I at times still wrestle with not being enough and cope with it with my myriad idolatries and the multiple ways I fall short of the glory of God every day. But we are also chosen as a holy nation. And this points to Peter's words in verses 1 through 3 and 11 and 12. There he speaks plainly about what it will cost us to follow Jesus. In verse 1, the Greek words, rid yourselves, literally state, strip off, as in all your clothes, all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, so as to crave pure spiritual food of the word. You have likely heard me say before that I am a professional sinner, not an amateur. I'm glad that there are only 10 commandments. That way I'm not daily having to confess that I've broken more than that. To strip off all of what Peter refers to will take the rest of my life. Furthermore, in verse 11, he gets to the heart of my matter, zeroing in on our very nature, not just what we do. He moves beyond my behaviors, commanding me to abstain even from the sinful desires that wage war against my soul. In response to being chosen, then, we are drawn into God's family as priests who themselves must regularly cleanse themselves before they can offer sacrifices for the people. God has chosen us as we are, but he has no intention of leaving us as we are. His choosing us, in part, is precisely because, apart from him, we are left utterly broken and lost. He chooses us, welcomes us with joy, in order to transform us, to overhaul my entire life. I am like David Wilcox's rusty old American dream, the car left by the side of the road going nowhere. Jesus has chosen me, welcomed me, brought me into his garage, where I find a room full of other cars, all of us in need of a great deal of work. He is working on me in ways that at times are joy-filled, at times discouraging, 
at times quite maddening, given how much malice and hypocrisy and slander and envy, especially envy, I seem to contain. But I am reminded that I am in his garage, which is comforting to an extent, because I know how hard this transformation business is. But as I look around, I see others who are also on this journey of transformation, fellow pilgrims whose willingness to enter the narrow gate and travel the narrow path enables me to do the same. How many times have I said that were it not for the collection of friends that I have in my life, I would be a dead man? For Jesus has chosen not only me, but others as well, in order to change us all and do so collectively. Let me remind us, the gods of Greece and Rome were unconcerned with ethics. They were not interested in stripping off envy or malice or abstaining from sinful desires. They were not concerned with faith, hope, or love, let alone sexual faithfulness. They were not interested in forming people into their image. Far from it. The God of the Jews was different. He very much intends to form us into the image of his son, to form each of us as a priest while forming us together as priests, building us together as living stones, solid and durable, but with the pulse of God in our minds and bodies and hearts, into a spiritual house, the precious cornerstone of which is Jesus. We are each formed, but only and necessarily, as Andrew reminded us a few weeks ago, by and in the context of community, a community of priests that craves pure spiritual milk, the unadulterated food of the word. Moreover, to be his priests meant and means that we are different in yet another way. Like the Hebrew priests before us, we too offer sacrifices, but they're different. Unlike the world, we sacrifice our malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, along with our culture's sexual allowances. But it is this difference, what we do in the face of our sin and our broken power structures, economic abuses, and sexual ethic confusion, that not only sets us apart, but becomes the very thing which draws others into the feast that God has prepared. We are chosen and completing Jesus' words in John 15, 16, appointed so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Fruit that proclaims to the world the good news that in Jesus, God is putting all to right, choosing us in the process, commissioning us as priests to live holy, joyful lives, lives in which our light will shine before others, such that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. But we don't do any of this apart from Jesus, the living stone. Apart from regularly immersing ourselves in scripture and prayer and confession and doing so with each other. For it is only in this way that we can attune to what God is doing in Jesus as he builds us into his house. The doubts that found me not long after Jesus did, back when I was 13, continued to nip at my heels, but with less fury than they once did, thanks be to God. And my sense of belonging only continues to grow, albeit at a pace I wish were faster. 
It grows not just because I have been welcomed, but also because the Holy Spirit is helping me strip off the clothing that represents my multiple layers of idolatry, imperfect as that process is. But I only do that in the presence of the other living stones with whom I am being built by God, not ourselves, into the house that Peter envisions. My guess is that this will be true for all of us. For only then can we put on Christ and live fully into the joy of being chosen as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who once were not a people, who once had not received mercy, but now have, and who live as a city on a hill, a light that shines before others, such that when they see who we are, finding themselves saying, finally, we see God our Father in all of his beauty and goodness, and he looks like them. May it be so for us here at WCF as we travel the narrow path together. Amen.